when you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, and when you come to a gathering such as this, and you hear men like me holding up these letters as being crucial for our understanding of what it means to be a biblical church, of how to be a church that is pleasing to God, and how we can know what gospel ministry is all about, and that what we read in this word must be the thing that governs everything that we think and do. When you hear that, I wonder if you're sometimes tempted to think a little bit like this. Yes, but that was such a long time ago, in a different place and in a different culture. There may be some principles in the Bible that are helpful. But don't we have to work out all of these things afresh for ourselves in the 21st century? Is that how you think? Maybe? Sometimes? Let me just remind you of something that Paul said when he wrote another letter. It's the one that's recorded as his first letter. In chapter 6, at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now listen to this. Is this so out of date? Is this so irrelevant to 21st century Britain? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It's not so out of date after all, is it? Let me remind you, Corinth was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Now, have you ever looked into the Roman Empire to see what it was really like back then? Have you looked into Roman society? Have you ever looked into the degree of idolatry and sexual immorality which was part of everyday life for many people in Roman culture? This city, Corinth, whose temple employed hundreds of prostitutes who plied their trade in the name of religion, we have far more in common with them than we have differences. We're just like them, in fact, and they were just like us. The kind of evils embracing our nation today are not new and they're not unknown. Some of them may be new to us, but they're not new. When you examine everything about culture and practice in Rome, if you looked into its politics, if you looked into what we today would call its foreign policy, if you examined what many today would call its record on human rights, if you look into its religious and social life, 
there is so much that is wrong in Rome and all that Rome stands for. So much that goes against God's word. So much that militates against the gospel and against gospel preachers. Just like we find here in the UK today. And interestingly, I find this very interesting. There is nothing in Paul's writings about protesting against government. Roman government was wicked through and through. There's nothing about forming great campaigns against them. Not that protesting is wrong, but as far as I can see, there's no biblical case for it, certainly not in the New Testament. Well, we could say a bit more about that if we went further down that road, but that's not my theme this morning. But you see, the whole point is this. Paul knows that ultimately the only lasting and meaningful change that can ever take place is that which God produces in the heart of the sinner by his grace and power. And he does it one sinner at a time, bringing them to himself. You cannot make a society in general to be righteous when that society is made up of unrighteous people. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't happen. It can't. The commission Jesus gave was not to preach the gospel and change society. It was to preach the gospel and make disciples. And that's what the apostles did. And that's the work that God did. There's a significant difference between those two things. And this is why Paul's main focus is always gospel preaching. Always. And that's why it must be the same focus for us. Preaching Christ. And in these first six verses, Paul lays down for us some gospel fundamentals. Now, of course, this isn't all that can be said on this topic, nor is it the only place where Paul addresses this topic But this is the passage in front of us this morning and there's more than enough material to keep us occupied for the next 30 minutes. Gospel ministry fundamentals. Three points. Here's the first one. Being faithful with God's word. Being faithful with God's word. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. Now let me first point out that at the start of chapter 4, Paul says, therefore we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. And then he concludes this section with the same phrase in verse 16. that you, We'll look at that this evening with, with Peter Gray, God willing. But you see, there's much in genuine gospel ministry that can cause you to lose heart. There'll be much to oppose you. There'll be much to discourage you. There'll be times when it seems like very little fruit is being produced. It'll be very costly with apparently little return. Seeing the goal of evangelism as only 
being about conversions and nothing but conversions, well, that would lead you to the conclusion that most evangelism is a complete failure. But remembering that the goal is to make Christ known, like we saw last week, and to disciple those who are saved, well, that puts things in a very different perspective for us. And this is the ministry, Paul says, as one to whom the abundant mercy of God has been given. When Paul encountered struggles, when Paul encountered disappointments, and he had plenty, there were certain realities which he brought to mind which spurred him on in his ministry. He remembered the very personal call of God upon his life, a God who had shown him remarkable mercy. At the moment that God called Paul to himself, Paul was going down a road looking to murder and imprison Christians. That's mercy. Mercy beyond measure and in such abundance has been shown to Paul. Even with his background as a persecutor of the church, God has made him fit to be his servant. Mercy which led him to Christ. Mercy which had brought him to his knees in repentance. Such mercy that no present suffering can be so great that it causes him to lose heart. And if you remember these kinds of things, when you go through trials, you too will find that you don't lose heart. And in verse verse 2, Paul makes reference again to those false teachers. He does it by, he's contrasting his own position against theirs. Their motives, their methods and their message, which stand in sharp contrast to his own. You see, just because a preacher quotes verses from the Bible, just because a preacher uses vocabulary that you're familiar with as being evangelical, that is no guarantee at all that he, or in some cases she, is a true and faithful minister of the gospel. They might have very considerable communication skills, but what is the message that they're communicating? That question is the one crucial issue which sadly too many Christians fail to ask. What is the message that is being conveyed? Is it a faithful exposition and application of the word of God? But he's got all kinds of qualifications. Excellent. So was Richard Dawkins. He's written lots of books. Very good. So did Enid Blyton. But so many people go to listen to him. And when the tickets went on sale at the start of the summer for Paul McCartney's latest series of concerts, they were all sold out in under 30 minutes. Since when did popularity guarantee biblical faithfulness? David Wells, in his book, The Courage to be Protestant, which is mainly written from a a North America perspective, but applies equally to us in the UK. He says this. In the wider Christian community today, there is to be found the spirituality which which is from above, which is Christian, which begins with God and his revelation of himself, and the spirituality which is from below, 
which is pagan. And then he says this. Today, the evangelical church is in a life and death struggle with this spiritual alternative, that is, a pagan spirituality. Even as were the apostles in the New Testament period. Today, this pagan spirituality comes in sophisticated psychological language. It sounds plausible, compelling, and even commendable. But let us make no mistake about it, it is lethal to biblical Christianity. That is why the biggest enigma we face today is the fact that its chief enablers are evangelical churches who, for different reasons, are selling spirituality disconnected from biblical truth. This is precisely the issue that Paul is addressing at Corinth. And these are precisely the issues leading so many astray today. A few verses are plucked out of their context to form the framework and foundation of an entire theology of mission. But other scriptures, crucial to a proper understanding and application, are simply ignored. There is nothing devious in what I preach, says Paul. I've no hidden motives, no hidden programs. I don't try to lure people in under a false pretense. I don't manipulate the message to try and suit it to a particular audience. Now, it's true, you might sometimes need to adjust your vocabulary a little to a particular audience. No point using all kinds of theological jargon words which people don't understand you might need to adjust your style of delivery a little here and there according to your audience and according to your situation but whoever you're preaching to and wherever you're preaching the message that's communicated is always to be exactly the same always And at the centre of all of this, says Paul, that at the centre of it is that I handle the word of God with complete integrity. I handle the word of God correctly. Whatever is the plain message of the text is the plain message of what I preach. Whatever is the plain meaning of the text is the plain meaning of my message. I don't hold something back just because I think it might not go down very well. I don't add something just because I think it will give it that extra little bit of edge that it needs. And that lies at the heart of it all, says Paul, proclaiming God's truth without distraction or deviation, having confidence in the word of God and in the truth of God. Now listen, these things may not always achieve the kinds of results that we long to see. And remember that Paul experienced every extreme of reception to his ministry. In the book of Acts, there are towns that are mentioned where Paul preached, were told absolutely nothing about what the response was, and we never read of a church being established there. In other places, 
many come to faith in a short period of time. On other occasions, the people rise up in violent protest against him and throw him out of town. But none of these varying responses to the gospel ever cause him to change his approach. None of these different responses ever cause him to change his method. None of these different responses ever cause him to change his message. Because gospel ministry has a clear and distinct definition as to what it is, as it's found in the Bible. That's why these letters are so important. And having made the truth known, Paul knows that everyone who's heard it is accountable before God as to what they do with that message they've heard. And Paul leaves it to their conscience. And his conscience, as we've already seen in this letter, is clear. Handling the word of God the way we should is the starting point. But even though we do that, as Paul discovered, as is evident from Christ's own ministry, there will still be many who don't believe. And here's the second point. Knowing why many will never believe. Verses 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, there's going to be those, and it just goes right over the top of their heads. It's veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, perhaps it's the case with these false teachers that they manipulate the gospel in such a way that it becomes very acceptable to a great many people. And so one of their claims is that wherever they go, they always seem to have this great success. They don't go into a town and preach and get nothing like Paul did sometimes. They've never been into a town and preached and the town rises up in protest against them and throws them out. That's never happened to them. Now we need to be careful not to drift away into too much speculation about these false teachers. But it seems very plausible that the reason why Paul might remind the Corinthian church of these things is because these are the kinds of things that these false teachers are doing. And Paul is reminding the church not to respond to those kinds of teachers. Have they forgotten another thing that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians? The natural man, the man and woman in their sin, do not receive the things of God because they're of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to them. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Imagine taking a blind person by the hand. You go into the city centre and you take them to the Walker Art Gallery. And you take them in and you walk them around. You take them around every floor. You take them around every gallery. You don't say a word. You don't describe anything. You just walk them around. You take them past every picture. And then you take them outside 
and you ask them this question. What was your favourite picture? You say, what a ridiculous situation to put yourself in. What a stupid question to ask. How can they possibly contemplate that? They have been literally in the dark. They haven't seen a thing, even though it's been right before their eyes. Because they cannot see. Remarkably, that's exactly the position we're in every time we preach the gospel. Part of the foolishness of gospel preaching is that actually no one can respond to it. (laughs) We're asking people to do something they can't. How crazy is that? They don't have the capacity to do what the gospel requires them to do. They're never going to repent of their sins. They have no desire to do it. They love their sins. They're not going to come into the light. They love the darkness. At least, that will always be the situation for as long as they are left to themselves. That's a significant thing. While sinners remain in their sin, their spiritual sight is veiled and they cannot see. Such men and women are perishing in their sin and will perish in their sin. The God of this age is Satan and he's blinded their minds making belief in Christ impossible. Satan has made their minds defective so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. And verse 4, they do not see, cannot see the glory of of Christ just like the blind person walking around the art gallery and because they cannot see the glory of Christ this explains you see why the name of Christ is thrown around in our society today as an expletive and as a curse because they cannot see the glory of Christ And if you think about it, it makes no logical sense why they should use Christ's name like that. They use his name to express all manner of emotions and responses, and yet his name in itself does not convey any particular meaning. So why do they they pick on that name? Why do they use that name? Because they have this inbuilt disposition not to glory in Christ, but rather to misuse his name as an expression of anger or frustration or disagreement or disbelief. That's the sinner lost in sin. And of course, let's remember, even when our nation was considered to be a Christian country, and even at a time when many of the churches in this land were full, Don't forget that the majority of the population were on the outside still with blinded minds. We know that many will never believe. But there's always a but with Paul. 
but confident of those whom God will save. Confident of those whom God will save. Verses 5 and 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves just bondservants, just slaves, for Christ's sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. He's thinking back to creation when God simply said, let there be light, and there was. Who has shone in our hearts. I wonder if Paul was remembering again that light that shined on the day of his conversion, brighter than the noonday sun. God shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, we see, first of all, Paul isn't peddling his own brand. Be very wary of people who run ministries in their own name. Uh, Many of us giggled when we first saw on TV uh, a middle-aged former professional boxer trying to convince us that the one item all our kitchens needed was the George Foreman grill. People have put their name to anything. No one else's grill will do. You need George Foreman's. Genuine gospel ministers don't set themselves up like that. They don't attach their own name to it. It's all done in the name of Christ and only in the name of Christ. One thing that, well, there's lots of things that make me want to scream sometimes, but here's one thing that really makes me want to scream. It's when a preacher is introduced on a platform and they're introduced to the people who are going to listen as if this person really is some kind of personality and everyone is encouraged to applaud them. No, I'm screaming on the inside. I'm just a slave for you, says Paul. We don't sit in auditoriums applauding men. That's not gospel ministry. What should happen before a man gets up to preach? There should be prayers of contrition. There should be confession of sin and repentance. A pleading that God would meet with us and move amongst us by his mercy and his grace. Through this one who is a slave to Christ. That's how the preacher should be greeted. With our hearts looking heavenward as the man steps up. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ, says Paul. If I am anything to you, I'm nothing more than a slave. Because what happens when we follow Paul's example? Verse 6. God, just like he commanded light to shine out of darkness in creation... God causes his gospel light to pierce sinful hearts. And God causes blinded minds to see. That's what he does. 
And unless and until he does it, that mind will remain blinded by Satan. But that which Satan has done is overpowered and overthrown and thrown out by the Spirit of the living God. As the light of the gospel pierces someone's dead, blind heart. But only God can do that. The preacher doesn't do it. The preacher just preaches the truth. The preacher declares Christ and God shines the light into the heart of the sinner. And what do they see? The knowledge of the glory of God. In other words, hearts and minds are opened to the majesty, the beauty, the splendor, the magnificence, the deity of God in his person. That's what they see. And how do they do this? Through the one who is preached, Christ, because he is the image of God, verse 4. You look into the face of Christ, which all of a sudden you see like you've never seen before, and there you find God. Jesus said, to see him is to see the Father. This is how people get saved. This is what God does, this is how God does it. That's what he did to Paul on the road to Damascus. Christ is preached. The truth of Christ is preached. That's the message. For many this message is veiled, blinded as they are in unbelief. But there are those in whom God moves. There are, there are those in whom God works and the veil is taken away. They see. You can't take the veil away from people's blinded minds. You can't. I can't. You can't do it with clever arguments. You can't do it with logical discussion. Only God can do it. And God does it in accompaniment to the preaching of Christ. That's the clear teaching of the Apostle Paul. In and through the proclaiming of Christ, God is seen in all his glory. And all that is necessary for salvation is brought to bear upon the sinful soul who is wonderfully and gloriously brought from death to life, out of darkness, into the light. And translated by God from there to here and gloriously and wonderfully saved. There is no system that you can employ other than this one that God has revealed to us on the page of Scripture. There isn't another system that you can try that does this instead. There is nothing else, just this. The issue is not about proving facts. The issue is not about winning arguments. Don't let them set the agenda of what you talk about. You preach Christ you tell them about Christ. You teach them the truth of God's word. That's the gospel. That's gospel ministry. It's a spiritual problem in which men and women and boys and girls are spiritually dead. And it's a spiritual problem which only God himself can overcome within them. The Bible tells us plainly we're to handle the word of God 
and to do it with integrity. We're to proclaim the truth about Christ. And the Spirit of God works in tandem with that proclamation whereby God shines his light into hearts and minds. If you're a Christian, he did that to you one day. There was one day, and you might say, all of a sudden the light came on, and it did, literally. And it was God who flicked the switch. It was God who did the work in you. For some of you, perhaps it was a little bit more like a dimmer switch rather than Paul's conversion, when he was just blasted with a floodlight from nothing. Perhaps for some, a bit more like a dimmer switch that came on slowly and gradually, but it was God turning the dimmer switch nonetheless. It was him doing it, and it grew brighter and brighter and brighter. Perhaps for some of you, like me, who grew up in a Christian home and always went to church, it was a bit more like that, but the light was coming on and coming on and coming on, but it's God who's turning the switch. And he shines his light into the hearts and minds of those who will be saved. Has he done it for you? There will be many who never believe. Many are called, few will be chosen, said Jesus. But we may be confident of those whom God will save when we use his appointed means. You are God's appointed voices. You might not be a preacher like this, but you can be a voice. You might not be a preacher like this, but you can be a herald. You can be one who tells. It begins by rightly handling the word of God. Speaking the truth of Christ. Soak it with prayer. And Christ is the Father's appointed saviour. Who is himself the image of God. And he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Our Lord and our God, our prayer is that you will give us confidence in the truth of your word. Confidence, O oh Lord, in that means that you have made known to us, by which Christ is to be proclaimed, and by which you will draw lost and sinful men and women to yourself, by which the glories of the Saviour might be made known and Lord we pray very much that we will be those who handle the word of God aright and that Father we will be voices in this dark world that we will be lights in this great darkness speaking of Christ declaring your truth and our great plea before you our Father is that you would yet be at work that you would shine your light into the hearts of many, that they might see the glory of Christ and in his face they might see the living God, that they might be gloriously saved. Oh Lord, would you please to use even us in the building of your church as we proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ together. And Lord, hear our prayer we ask. Make us fit for this task in Jesus' name. Amen.